the walking and the beauty is not superficial. It's harmony, it's peace, and life is always going to have disruptions to that peace and harmony. And it's the effort again of the cycle of restoring. This week, I speak with Farina King, co-author of Returning Home, Diné Creative Works from the Intermountain Indian School, published by the University of Arizona Press. We shared an excerpt from this interview in episode 121, Gathering, Indigenous Journeys Home and the Power of Place, which you can find on our website or your digital podcast app. Farina is an associate professor in Native American Studies at the University of Oklahoma and joined me in the In Good Faith Studios. Returning is something I've thought a lot about because I feel often like I'm in exile since um, my father worked for Indian Health Service and that was a big calling for him to represent many Native Americans, not only Navajo Nation, to the United States government and to really fight for uh, indigenous health in Mm -hmm. the United States. But that was demanding of his time and what he did. And and we had to live in the Washington, D.C. area for a long time for that. And I think that happens is for whatever reason, we scatter. And my brother kind of hit me with it, too, because he continues my father's legacy by working for Indian Health Service. And he told me, we also need to have some of our people here at the Capitol to speak in these meetings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The land is integral to indigeneity. What does it mean to be indigenous? And in this case, specifically Dene. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be Dene? To know and be drawn to that. So we're hearing about Deb Holland and the Department of Interior and, and even Congress having some hearings about a federal Indian boarding school truth initiative and, and these questions of, are there reparations? Like, how can we have reconciliation and healing? And this is something I hope people do not overlook is just the healing and coming together and what that means. Um, For me as well, this hit home because um, why I became really interested in history and even boarding schools um, was my uncle, uh, Albert Smith, who has been gone a while. So I just always feel tenderhearted when I talk about him and so many people he touched uh, their lives. He and his wife, Helen, who is uh, Laguna Pueblo in Diné. And he was a Navajo code talker. Mm. And I had a high school teacher who said, go talk to your uncle. You know, oh my goodness, he's a code talker because I, I mentioned it. And... She got me into a History Day documentary project where I interviewed my uncle. And he didn't want to talk to me about war stories. There were personal reasons for that. I was a 16-year-old niece coming to talk to him, teenage girl. And he was taught not to talk about some of those very difficult memories. That was a part of ceremony for him, not to talk about that. So he began with telling me about his childhood and his early memories And that's where he told me he had to speak to rocks and sticks at boarding school because he would be punished for speaking Navajo. And he taught me about how important the land is. And he took me to Bahale, Bread Springs, where my Nali, my paternal grandfather's ancestors are from, and my relatives are, the Sinijini people, Black Street Woods people are from. 
And he said, this is important for you to know and see this is where our ancestors are from. This is our homeland. You know, he made that very conscious effort to teach me that and that I know my clans. He was very important in that way for me. I just recently was able to go um, to the gathering at the beginning of the Intermountain Indian Boarding School reunion in Navajo Nation. And I just always feel again, I'm home. Um, my family lives close comparatively to Zodzith, which is Mount Taylor, the sacred mountain of the South. And it's called Turquoise Mountain. And so I'm often driving from Albuquerque, to be honest, from Albuquerque on I-40 and I see Zodzith and I just um, feel different. Like it's it's the the gate home. And that is, as my uncle Albert would say, the mountain is our church. And I've learned it's the archives. It has so many layers of meaning. Uh, and it meant something different to my grandfather, my ancestors, as it does to me even today, that I know Deneta is near Chaco Canyon. That's uh, where Kiyaani, my ancestors as well, my clan also is from that area. So it's very special to me and my relatives in particular, not only all Dene, but has that connection as well to us. And so there's places, even among Dene, we are very different. We have very different experiences. So I always have to emphasize that as a Native American studies professor, is that's the 101 lesson is embrace the complexities, embrace the diversities, even of when we use these all-encompassing phrases of Native American, Navajo, you know, whatever it is. And so there's, for me on a personal level, what I feel and experience and, and reflect on when I return to Dene Bekeya, it's also returning to my kin. Because when you talk about the disbursement, there's also still the strong presence that there are many Dene who have stayed and remained mm. the caretakers and the stewards of these lands and have sustained our homelands while many of us have journeyed far. And many of them have journeyed far places and they've returned, like my own Uncle Albert and, and my relatives. He went across the world, you know, and had yeah. very crazy experiences in that way. And that's where that hit me too, was a lot of his healing was being a part of the Navajo Co-Talker Association and being with other veterans and seeing that gathering. So when people come together and they can have not only this space that means something on a spiritual level of these are the lands that, yay, you know, the the sacred people are there and they watch us and they care for us. But then it's also on all these different levels too of of living and breathing and and where families began and, and come full circle. A, a couple of questions about when cultures collide or overlap or meet. I mean, but sometimes it's collide and especially perhaps more in the past, but that's not all in the past. Um, so being someone who sort of lives in two worlds, is connected to two different uh, worlds and cultures, if you're comfortable, how do you piece together a spiritual life of various traditions? Yeah, um, 
Well, first off, it's multiple worlds. So it's even harder than two. two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just tell people that it's like, and my friends, my colleagues have said that too. uh, There's great works out there that even break down this uh, binary of two worlds Uh. because what are the two worlds, right? Is it white and native? But then within that, it's intersectionality, right? Of of religious identity, gender, how that affects it. Um, Even like I mentioned what I, I think I was trying to get at too before is even for Dene, um, some places are sacred or have a very deep meaning meaning to a specific Dene clan or a family that isn't to another. So then this is confusing when you're having these legal debates and all all these dynamics, right? So very intricate, many worlds, many facets to these identities. So for me, I just do the best to understand and also explain that, the understandings that I'm learning and I'm constantly learning. That's what I love about being a scholar is that I get to just yeah. throw myself into it, you know, and do that. Um, as far as any personal connection with something divine, where do you make those connections? Well, I mean, even going back to your first question that is certainly interrelate, interrelated to this about collisions and mm. tensions, right? What what is sacred? What is divine? That's the big question, and it and it pans out yeah. even in these issues that we hear about bears ears, Shash Jaw, for example, or uh, Chaco Canyon, right? Is that yes? Ideally, we want to respect and understand anyone can believe anything, and on on a different level. Um, even when they share common beliefs, there's like this personal individual experience and level that that happens. But um, where there's conflict is often when those meanings carry protocols, carry practices, um, affect people in society, their societal relationships. And this is something very real and very difficult in the Nebuchadnezzar and Navajo Nation as religions, different kinds of religions like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, um, Dene ancestral teachings. And it's interesting because um, Dene, before European contact and the introduction of language, not only religion, but even language that we use, the word religion, there's not a word for religion in, in Dene Bazad in Navajo language because if you're Dene, you just, that's a part of who you are, your spiritual ways and, and what you Can do. You, uh, help me pronounce this. Hosho? Hajo. Hajo. So the word religion was maybe imposed on some of that, but it was it was the way of, of living, of being. Mm-hmm. Is that what, mm-hmm. that's what you're saying? Yeah. So you you mentioned a very to important walk in beauty. Yes, so. the central Dene teaching uh, or belief. I mean, again, this is lost in translation. This was a Dene. It's a Dene central way of being. Mm. Is Sanagai Bikehajon, and that is also the teachings of the four directions. It is all all intertwined. It's translated as walk in beauty, but it it's deeper than that. It's quite uh, amazing how intricate Dene language is. That um, walk is, again, that process of journey. It's living, like even walking in, and living symbolic. So mm-hmm. it's also understood as living a long life in happiness. 
the walking and the beauty is not superficial. It's harmony. It's peace. And life is always going to have disruptions to that peace and harmony. And it's the effort, again, of the cycle of restoring. How do you restore that peace? How do you reconcile? Heal is a very central part of that. So that, to me, is when there's arguments, there's even arguments all the time within families, within people who you're very close to. Of what does it mean to be Dene? Who is a true, authentic Dene? This goes in circles and circles. But to me, I think what's, and I say that a lot because I'm, I'm speaking from a very specific <laughs> positionality and I'm not speaking for all people. I'm not yeah. even speaking for my own close kin and mm-hmm. relatives. But um, for me, I've found peace in seeing it as how family are connected and that there are more in common, more that we share and value that we need to focus on than what differentiates us and and divides us. But sadly, there's people who don't act upon those those ideals and they see things differently and then they act differently about it and and it's very sensitive it is very sensitive in navajo country and um even just divisions of christian groups of uh, or like a sense of competition that that comes up and, or, and those are who, who's more authentic than who yes who is, yeah. yeah yeah and then christianity i mean it's such a spectrum as well that i've I feel so powerfully when I, I focus on this and talk to different people of a spectrum of some people who hate, just have a hate of, of certain um, religions because of, you know, there are reasons of, of the violence, how it reinforced yeah. a lot of violence and terrible things that happen. And then the other spectrum of being very defensive and almost apologetic of those same religions. So it. And all in between. So then how do we seek balance and and come as a consensus in a collective? That's so important in Diné ways as well is I've seen really hard rupture in family. And I think that's something any people can relate to is when we see the world and when war and violence happen that we focus so much on. What are we doing for peace? Mm. What are we each doing for that peace in, in our circle? And there's a lot of wrongs that have been done, mistakes and, and terrible things, but how can we how can we forgive and not just forgive but rectify? Because forgiveness confuses a lot of people that some think they can, like, force it from Mm. a people. Like, you can't force forgiveness when there's still perpetual harm Mm -hmm. being done. And just by continuing in ignorance, and I will call it, it's a continuance of ignorance. Like, Mm -hmm. it's an intentional ignorance almost, that when you're blocking, even trying to understand, uh, to know how to how to stop that violence, the perpetual violence. 
Like I, I mentioned, the fact that we still have these arguments over land and it's hurting people. It is hurting people. Even just um, negative indigenous imagery that people say, well, this is for fun. This is great. But they're not understanding how dehumanizing that is because it's not their people, right? Mm-hmm. And they think they can treat, that it's okay to treat someone like that. How can we stop and say, yeah, it does matter of how I treat someone and it doesn't just have to be about me. And that's really hard because we're like naturally in our own heads and in our own experiences. So I I absolutely try to engage in these conversations to help people um, understand and do the best I can to speak different languages and, and understand where they're coming from. And so that hopefully we can have a connection and and relationship. I was fortunate to have an advisor and instructor at Arizona State University, Diné Poet Laureate, Laura Tohi, and she uh, taught a course on Diné narratives, and she introduced me to um, a narrative of Big Horse, the warrior. And I love um, this story that was told by his daughter about what warrior means because people have the stereotypes of Indian warriors and and these different aspects. But then he emphasized that among Diné, a big part of what warrior means, which is an important role among Diné, is they remind people we're family and they bring them together. And I just find these teachings, whether it's in a school classroom and then it's like, it opens up questions for me that I... I know how to relate that to even my early childhood experiences. So a quick example of that, I know I'm talking in these maybe ambiguous ways, so a more concrete example of that is um, the horned toad is very sacred to Diné. Um, we call the horned toad Che, grandfather in Navajo. And one of my earliest memories since I was born in Tonanez Dize and lived as a small child in Denebekeya, is I remembered very visually um, holding Che and being drawn to Che. I just, I remember that. Mm. And then later in life, um, I I didn't fully know or I wasn't taught. Even I went to these public schools that didn't value or have any connection with really Native American and better yet, Dene uh-huh. teachings and history. Um, or or culture. And my uncle Albert, he wanted to be called Che, specifically Horn Toad was a name he wanted to affiliate with. And then later I started to really learn what Horn Toad means through these teachings that they're sacred. They are more than a lucky charm. They they represent, you know, that that Hujo is mm-hmm. is with us and, and these aspects. And then we we read about how changes in the climate, these extreme weathers and the impacts on ecological systems, drought, land, is these che are not appearing anymore and they're becoming endangered. And I hadn't seen, even while I had returned to Diné Bikeya and visit family and really feel home, I wasn't seeing che around. I just couldn't find find che. Yeah, I, I, Sometimes I wasn't looking, but a few times I kept wondering. And after COVID-19, which really brought into the forefront 
a lot of these what we call syndemic, a combination of the the horrors of a pandemic and also issues of drought, climate, all these just compounded issues yeah. in, in this time that we're living through that many have have not survived, including, you know, some of my beloved relatives and people. Um that I return finally after the shutdowns, the lockdowns, when the gathering was being cut off for yeah. our very survival. And I just prayed that I really wanted to see Che. And it was very powerful and symbolic that my children, I told them, because it's a part of that cycle of continuing. Yes, we're changing. We're not our grandparents. We're, I'm not my parents, you know. We're very different, but we are also continuing in these changes of the teachings and even all these multiple worlds that we're navigating. The, even the past and the present and the future are different worlds. And my children, um, I told them about Che and what it meant and that I really hoped to see one. And they found Che came to them at um, one of my relatives' house in Dene Bikeya. And it just was so, you know, that to me was a moment of hajo, hajo, that peace and harmony there. Mm-hmm. And like a connection even to my, my uncle who passed on and wanted to be called that. Oh, what a beautiful story. And nice that your children were involved in that too. <laughs> yeah. To add another generation. I Our- thought they were teasing me at first. <laughs> they were like, we see, we see a horned toad. I'm like, no, it's been too long. You're just playing with me. But they did. Let me ask you a question that I would ask a scholar who studies any kind of belief. And I've asked this of Hindu scholars and Christian scholars, which is, what has it done for you to seek the knowledge and understanding and to be a scholar of this knowledge of your ancestors and others? I actually had a really hard time stepping into being a scholar of Native American studies, which is ironic because it it propelled me through education, through uh-huh. schooling. I mean, specifically, I wasn't doing well in my early grade school classes, and I just wanted to be outside. I really hated school as a kid. I did not like reading. And uh, then I was in about fifth grade, and we had an assignment about uh, Native American cultures, and each student was supposed to work on uh, tribal history. And I knew I was Diné, but... Actually, because in a way, I was separated from my family for a long time. And my grandparents passed away when I was young. Um, You know, many elders passed away when I was young. That's important teachers who I did not have a chance to be with in my life as much. I, I was very young, at least, when they passed away. And those are the ones that's... It's who they are. Like, so when I was at that age and realized how much I didn't know, but I I had the inkling, just mm-hmm. knew, 
I knew my dad, and he'd come even and do presentations in class. I just started to ask my dad more questions. What games did you play? What, you know, was a Hogan? What's the difference between a male and a female Hogan? What? I wanted to know and know. And then it also was a journey of I wanted to know my family and my ancestors. So I just wanted to understand. But as I started to learn, it's very personal and and it's hard in a scholarly setting. When you're doing research, there's this push for objectivity and um, often authority, uh-huh. legitimacy. And then there's even this a suspicion of when something does have a personal connection of where's the evidence, the facts, ma'am, just the facts, uh-huh. right? And so that's really hard to um, address when I'm I'm interviewing, I'm talking to my relatives, I'm learning about my relatives, that very personal and emotional level for me. So I actually pursued African history for a while because of the connections I saw and the impacts of colonialism yeah. and colonization and, and these dynamics. But in a sense, home kept calling back to me and I, and my family, and I really wanted to direct my work to support them, that I realized how distorted a lot of histories have been, and there's mythologizing that has negative impacts on um, these histories and dynamics. So that's where I, I just said, this is going to be hard, but I I think it's still worth it to enter that because what I have an opportunity to do that maybe very few others do and to illuminate that and understanding of that. But I can't talk about even what my father has lived through of being raised by a Hatafle medicine man and and his mother, also a healer in her own right, a daughter of Hatafle too, a, a medicine man in English, as we say, or a traditional healer, and that he went to boarding school and had these horrific experiences, separation, but that is also something he even says he's proud of his education. He doesn't regret it. It becomes a part of him that I won't ever fully understand being him, but I'm someone who can help to share his voice and his story. So at least my children and grandchildren and posterity will know like how I want to know my ancestor's story. Thanks again to Farina King for speaking with me. Her most recent book, Returning Home, Diné Creative Works from the Intermountain Indian School, is available on Amazon. This episode had help from Austin Ball, Peter Ellison, Heather Bigley, and Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.